Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, hey, church family, thanks for tuning in once again to this week's teaching. Uh, I decided to switch up the scenery just a little bit and film it upstairs. Maybe this will make us really, really excited about the day that we get to meet in this room again, uh, or maybe it'll just make us super sad that all these seats are empty and that we don't get to be in here right now. Either way, just decided I'd switch it up. Really, it was just because there was better light in here uh, than our dungeon basement office. So uh, that's what we're doing. But if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn Turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. 1 Peter, chapter 2. So after a brief hiatus due to the coronavirus and everything that surrounds that, uh, we are hopping right back into our series through the book of 1 Peter in the Bible that we have titled Life in Exile. So to jog our memory just a little bit, I know it's been about a month since we've been in this book. Uh, the overall purpose of the book of 1 Peter was to help ancient followers of Jesus learn how to relate to the society around Around them. That is Peter, the author's primary goal in this letter. The people that he writes to were followers of Jesus living in a world and a society that didn't much like them or care for them and often was very skeptical of them, was very suspicious of those followers of Jesus. And so Peter is trying to help these followers of Jesus know how to live in that type of an environment. So where we left off about a month ago in this book, Peter was actually talking specifically about how they should relate to the governing authorities and political figures of their world. So if you missed that, feel free to go back, grab the podcast. It was a whole lot of fun. I made everybody mad on both sides of the political aisle. And then after that, we decided to never meet in person on Sunday ever again. Uh, So that's kind of what we covered there. But that's what we talked about. We talked about how we relate to governing authorities and political figures of our day. And so today, what Peter is going to get into in today's passage is another specific application of this big picture idea. But this one is going to require that we do some work before we can really apply it directly to our world today. So let's just dive into the passage. I'm actually just going to read the entire thing for us, verses 18 through 25, and then we'll go back and sort of work our way through it little by little. First Peter 2, starting in verse 18. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live 
to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So, Peter kicks off this passage with servants, and the most literal translation of that word is actually bond servants, or rather slaves, be subject to your masters. So obviously, we have got our work cut out for us with this passage. The fact that the Bible brings up the idea of slavery and says anything about it other than abolish it entirely is usually really difficult for us as modern Americans, and and understandably so. After all, it is passages like this one that early colonial Americans used to justify the African slave trade. People who were Christians, or who at least claimed to be Christians, would point to passages in the Bible like this one and say, see, God is totally okay with slavery, because here the Bible says that slaves should be subject to their masters. Now, we're going to see here shortly how that is a pretty shallow, uninformed reading of these passages. But on the surface, at least, when you just read what the passage says, you can see where they got that from. So this is a really difficult passage for us, no doubt about it at all. So to start off, uh, we need to ask the question, does the word slaves mean the same thing to Peter that it means to us today? That's really important to understanding what Peter is and isn't saying in this passage. We cannot just assume that a word in the Bible always means the exact same thing to its audience that it means to us today, because there are usually cultural differences between their society and ours. So to illustrate that with a really silly example, there is a verse in Luke chapter 17 where we read that Jesus traveled from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Now, the shortest route between those two places was about 64 miles. So we could assume when we read that, that when it says Jesus traveled that distance, it means what the word travel means to us today, that Jesus hopped in his energy-efficient Prius, because everybody knows Jesus would drive a Prius. He popped in his Chance the Rapper playlist on Spotify, naturally, and zoomed about an hour up the road to Jerusalem. We could assume that that's what it means because that's what the word travel means to us today. But that's not what the word travel meant to people back then. Back then, you traveled by foot or animal, not by Prius. And it would have taken people an hour, it wouldn't have taken people an hour to make that trip. It would have taken the better part of a day or maybe multiple days to make that type of trip. Now, you guys are smart people, so you would never assume something silly like that about the word travel. But it illustrates the point that we can't assume that a word means the same thing to them that it means to us, because there's a lot of cultural distance between our two worlds. So in a similar way, I don't think we can read the word slaves in First Peter and assume that the word slavery means the exact same thing to them as it means to us Today, we read the word slavery and we immediately picture in our heads the, the early American slave trade. So primarily white or European Americans sending ships to African countries, capturing millions of human beings there and then forcing them into a life of hard labor here in America. That's what we think of when we hear the word slavery. But that isn't what Peter was referring to. One reason I know that is because all of that happened 1,500 years after Peter writes what he writes here. So really, if you want to know what 
God thinks about that type of slavery, the type of slavery practiced in early America, you don't actually have to look much further than verses like Exodus 21, 16 that say this. Whoever steals a man and sells him, which is pretty much an exact description of what early American slave traders did. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So that type of slavery, God says, is punishable by the death penalty. So I'm going to mark God down for a vote of against to strongly against that type of slavery that was practiced in early America. As we would expect, since God is and always has been opposed to injustice in all of its forms, especially injustice of that scope and magnitude like early American slavery was. That type of slavery was thought up by a group of men who had completely severed their consciences from any influence from the scriptures at all. Because the scriptures clearly speak out against that type of slavery. And so unless Peter, our author, who was a Jewish man steeped in Old Testament books like Exodus, unless he is just totally forgotten about verses like Exodus 21 that we just read, it must be that he is talking about an altogether different type of institution than all of that. So to help us a little bit on this, what can we piece together historically about the difference between slavery as we know it and the type of slavery that Peter is referring to in this passage? I think it might be helpful to highlight a few significant differences. First, and maybe most significantly to you and I, People of any and all races were slaves in Peter's day. So it wasn't limited to any one ethnicity. It was not an inherently racist institution like early colonial slavery was. That's the first distinctive. Second, slaves in Peter's day performed all types of work, not just physical labor. So slaves were just as likely to work as doctors or teachers or writers or accountants as they were to work any type of blue-collar jobs. A, a lot of slaves during Peter's day were actually better educated than their masters were. And third, a third distinctive of the type of slavery in Peter's day was that slavery was usually financially motivated back then. So in Peter's day, you weren't captured and forced into slavery. You generally sold yourself into slavery. For some people, it was because a life of consistent work and food and shelter as a slave was preferable to sort of scrounging around for odd jobs on a regular basis. For other people, it was because they had incurred enormous amounts of debt that could not ever be feasibly paid off. So the options for those people were either be put in prison indefinitely, leaving your family to starve to death, or sell yourself into slavery, which meant you and your family would be provided for. You'd have food and water and shelter while you worked to pay back whoever helped you pay off your debt. So I know all of that is very brief, and if you're interested in looking into all of that more about the differences between these two types of slavery, shoot me an email. I'll be glad to point you to some resources that might be helpful. But I just wanted to briefly help you see that Greco-Roman slavery, the type of slavery that Peter is talking about, and early American slavery are actually two very different concepts at their core. And that's not to say that we should be proponents of either type of slavery today, but I think it does help us understand a little bit better what Peter is saying and not saying in this passage in chapter 2. But all of that said, 
while the type of slavery that Peter refers to in this passage was vastly different from what you and I as modern Americans know as slavery, there were still a few similarities between those two things. You were, after all, still someone else's property. That part was the same, at least. You were indebted to that person so far as your financial obligations went. And specifically, according to our passage today, it would seem that some masters still committed physical violence against their slaves, even in Peter's day. Now, in today's world, if someone commits any type of physical violence against us, we, generally speaking, have legal recourse that we can take in response to that, right? So, so we can have them charged with assault or, or battery or domestic violence or harassment or whatever the charge might be. And let me be very clear on this. We should take that type of legal action in those scenarios. If anyone tries to tell you that verses like these in the Bible mean that you should just put up with abusive behavior towards you and not say anything about it and just submit to it, not only is that person very bad at reading the Bible in context, they are a dangerous person and you should respond to that accordingly. So I want to be crystal clear on that part. But that being said, we have to keep in mind as we read this passage that Peter is writing to a society that did not have the same type of legal actions that they could take like we do. People who were slaves in his day did not have the same type of rights that their masters did. So they couldn't just appeal to the authorities like we can today. And so it's not a perfect parallel, but try to imagine telling a Jewish person living in Nazi Germany that they should call the authorities to report being mistreated. That just wasn't a thing. That wasn't an option. It was actually the authorities that were doing the mistreating. So it wouldn't do them any good to do that. And while the ancient Roman Empire was not Nazi Germany, it was similar in the way that these people in slavery often did not have legal options. They didn't have legal recourse they could take for being mistreated. So they had to come up with other types of responses. And that is what Peter is trying to help them with in our passage today. So with all of that unpacked, let's work our way back through this passage sort of verse by verse and look at how Peter instructs these followers of Jesus in those types of scenarios. We'll spend a bit unpacking what he says, and then we'll talk some at the very end about some ways that this might apply to us in our society today. So take a look with me, starting in verse 18 of our passage. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So that word unjust there in verse 18 is describing the moral bankruptcy of their masters. The situation that Peter has in mind is when a slave who is a follower of Jesus is enslaved to a master who is not a follower of Jesus. And because their master is not a follower of Jesus, he doesn't have the same type of ethical framework that would prevent him from mistreating his slaves. Peter is saying, if you find yourself in that type of scenario where there's no way out, there's nothing you can do about it as a follower of Jesus who is a slave, here is how you should think about it. Here's how you should respond. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing, endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Peter says it is a gracious thing to endure unjust suffering. Now, just for clarity, he doesn't mean that it's a good thing to be mistreated. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you should seek out unjust suffering. He's not saying you should try to put yourself in scenarios where you'll be treated in this way. And he also says that you shouldn't invite mistreatment from others by doing sinful things to other people. But he is saying that if you find yourself in that type of scenario where you are being treated unjustly for doing something good and there's nothing you can do about it, no action you can take, he says it's not purposeless to find yourself in that scenario, that God can still work through it. And then he unpacks why he believes that. Pick it up with me in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So the reason that it is a gracious thing to suffer unjustly is because that is precisely what Jesus did during his time on earth. So Jesus himself was mistreated throughout his entire life, and specifically in the days and hours leading up to his death on the cross. Peter says Jesus also committed no sin, no wrong, deserving of the treatment that he received. He didn't lie to anybody. He didn't wrong anybody. He didn't sin against anybody. And yet when he was mistreated, he didn't retaliate. When he was beaten, he chose not to fight back. And by Jesus choosing that route, it says that God actually was accomplishing something. Look at verse 24 in our passage. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So the historic Christian understanding is that when Jesus was mistreated and beaten and mocked and executed, when all of that happened, that wasn't just one more example of someone dying an unjust death that there was actually something deeper going on sort of beneath the surface, that, that by Jesus enduring what he endured, he was actually bearing the weight and injustice due all of our sins. That, that in some way, the, the rulers and authorities that mistreated Jesus were actually channeling God's justified anger towards our sin. All the frustration that God has towards the things that corrupt his good design for his world, all of that was actually laid on Jesus. And so when Jesus hung on the cross, he was actually intercepting that frustration, that justice on our behalf. So even though the rulers and authorities were acting sinfully and, and were acting unjustly, God was actually accomplishing something through all of that, the healing that each of us needed for our sin. So Peter unpacks all of that for his audience in this passage hoping that they will start to connect the dots. That if God could accomplish something good through Jesus' mistreatment, he may also be able to accomplish something good through their mistreatment. 
that, that by them enduring unjust suffering, God might be accomplishing something behind the scenes that they are unaware of. So what type of thing would that be exactly that God would be accomplishing? Well, back in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, if you can remember back to when we covered those verses, Peter said that followers of Jesus should live honorable lives towards the world around them in hopes that God might use that to draw people towards himself. So it seems like what Peter is saying here is that when Christian slaves endure mistreatment from their masters, that God might use that endurance to expose the injustice of those masters, to convict them of that injustice, and maybe, just maybe, to draw those masters to the way of Jesus as a result. Maybe that's what Peter means when he says that enduring mistreatment is, quote, gracious. He means that it extends grace to those mistreating you. Because we are, in a very Jesus-esque way, absorbing their wrongdoing onto ourselves, which may give them an opportunity to experience healing for their sin, for them to be rescued into the family of Jesus. That's the idea in Peter's head. So I've always loved the way that Martin Luther King Jr. put all of this. He once said it this way. He said, I have been arrested five times and put in Alabama jails. My home has been bombed twice. A day seldom passes that my family and I are not the recipients of threats of death. I've been the victim of a near fatal stabbing. My personal trials have also taught me the value of unmerited suffering. As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways I could respond to my situation, either to react with bitterness or to seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. I decided to follow the latter course. Recognizing the necessity for suffering, I have tried to make of it a virtue. If only to save myself from bitterness, I have attempted to see my personal ordeals as an opportunity to transform myself and to heal the people involved in the tragic situation which now obtains. I have lived these last few years with the conviction that unearned suffering is redemptive. That unearned suffering is redemptive. Did you hear that? That's precisely what Peter is saying in this passage, that not only can mistreatment be endured, but that God can work through it to accomplish absolutely beautiful things. Now, let me just pause and acknowledge how difficult this idea probably is for most of us. It is so difficult for us to imagine as Americans that we should ever be mistreated, much less that God might accomplish something good through that mistreatment. But that is what Peter lays out in this passage. And just before we start thinking that that is some sort of radical, far-fetched sort of idea, I would encourage you to consider something with me. Consider that almost without exception, the places where the church is growing the most, where people are coming to Jesus by the thousands or even millions, are the countries where Christians are most persecuted and mistreated. I'm talking about places like China and Iran, places like North Africa, places where the government is doing their best to stomp out the growth of Christianity through persecution and lengthy prison sentences, and the church is growing lightning fast as a result. 
So it would seem that Peter is onto something here. It would appear that God really can work in incredible ways through his people being mistreated. And inversely, isn't it interesting that in societies where Christianity is actually very socially acceptable and isn't persecuted much at all, that in those places, the church is often in decline. Now, obviously, that's not me saying that I want to be persecuted, okay? I I quite appreciate not going to jail for being a Christian. It's just a general observation that proves Peter knows what he's talking about that God often uses the mistreatment of his people to draw people towards himself. So if nothing else, all of this is food for thought, right? That, That the undeniable pattern from scripture and from church history is that by enduring mistreatment, we actually have an opportunity to put Jesus on display who also endured mistreatment. And that God might use all of that to draw more and more people to the way of Jesus. So with all of that unpacked, let's just wrap up for a little bit by talking about what all of this might mean for us today. Given that we are not in the same cultural situation as Peter's audience, at least not most of us listening to this, how should we think about this whole thing? As I said earlier, uh, the point of this passage definitely isn't that we should be pro-slavery. That should be obvious at this point. The point also isn't that we should invite physical violence against us or even that we should endure things like violence or harassment or abuse without reporting it to the authorities. That's not the point either. But I do think we can learn some things from this passage about how we should respond to being mistreated as followers of Jesus. I think for most of us, our sort of knee-jerk response anytime we are mistreated is to assert our rights and then bail on whatever situation it is, right? So if people are mean to us at work, we call it a toxic workplace environment and we quit that job. If a friend offends us or does something that hurts our feelings, we call them an unsafe person and we stop hanging out with them entirely. Now listen, There is such a thing as a toxic workplace environment. That's a real thing. There is such a thing as unsafe people. Those are both actual things that exist. But listen, if we use terms like that just to describe any situation that we're in that we don't happen to like, eventually terms like that start to have no meaning at all. (laughs) They don't mean anything like what they're supposed to mean because we're just throwing them out there for any adverse situation we find ourselves in. And if that's how we respond to adverse situations throughout our life, we will never learn how to navigate adversity as human beings. We will go from job to job, friendship to friendship, relationship to relationship, always baffled as to why people in each of those situations don't treat us as well as we think we should be treated. But the truth is that we actually need some adversity in our lives in order just to grow as human beings, in order to grow and mature. So best-selling author Greg Lukianoff puts it like this. So this is a very long quote, and to be honest, a very blunt quote, but I think it is so very good. So I'm going to read this to you. From time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. 
Sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time so that you don't take friends for granted. A lesson that probably a lot of us are learning right now during social distancing. But he continues, I wish you bad luck again from time to time so that you will be conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. And when you lose, as you will from time to time, I hope every now and again, your opponent will gloat over your failure. It's a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so that you know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you will have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they are going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. See, the reality is that we have to learn to endure adverse situations if we want to grow as human beings. That's just the way that it works. And more importantly, Peter says by enduring adverse situations, we also gain the opportunity to put Jesus on display. So, What if we took Jesus at his word on this? What if we took Peter at his word? What if we began to ask the question, is God asking me to endure occasional mistreatment as a gracious thing in the sight of God? Now, at this point, some of us may be thinking, are we really saying that we should just endure mistreatment rather than calling it out? Like, is that really what we're saying here? Like, are we really saying that we should just endure things like sexism and racism for God's sake and not confront the horrific realities that those are? And the answer is no, we're not saying that. We're not saying that we shouldn't stand up for injustice. And one reason we're not saying that is because those two things are not mutually exclusive. You can endure mistreatment and still insist on justice. Those things are not mutually exclusive options. Martin Luther King knew this as much as anybody. You could probably sum up the themes of his preaching and speaking into two categories. On the one hand, demanding justice against injustice, and two, what he called suffering love, which was a way of saying enduring mistreatment because of what Jesus calls us to. Martin Luther King didn't think he had to choose between those two options. In fact, he sort of saw them as two sides of the same coin. And I think the scriptures would teach the same thing to us. As followers of Jesus, we are called to speak up and speak out against injustice wherever and however we see it. But listen, doing that doesn't exclude us from suffering under it as a way of following in Jesus' footsteps, as as a way of embodying the sacrificial love that Jesus put on display. So the question is, where might be God be calling us to do that? To, To endure mistreatment even as you fight for justice. Again, I'm not referring to abuse. I'm not referring to violence. I'm talking about situations where you are being mistreated in a legal, permissible sort of way. So I'm talking about someone being mean to you for no apparent reason. I'm talking about somebody gossiping about you behind your back. I'm talking about someone taking credit for your work. I'm talking about you being excluded by a group of friends. I'm talking about a professor just having it out for you in one particular class in school. 
in those types of situations, how might you demonstrate Jesus to the person or the people who are mistreating you? In those types of situations, might it be that you enduring mistreatment is a gracious thing in the sight of God? Might it be an opportunity to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who endured what he endured so that people might be rescued into God's family? Now, I say all of this uh, keenly aware of the fact that, that some people who hear this have been mistreated throughout their entire life. A lot of people have. Like my worst fear is that someone would hear this teaching or hear this passage in First Peter and think that it is telling them to remain in an abusive romantic relationship of some sort. That is not, I repeat, that is not what Peter is pushing for here at all. And there are people who have endured a lot of things like that, abuse and violence, horrific things that they have endured often. And if that's you, I want you to hear me say that Jesus is with you, that he wants that to end, and he wants you to tell somebody about it immediately who can help. In one way or another, Jesus will see to it that those who did that to you are dealt with. Nobody escapes the justice of God. You can count on that. So if you're in that category, I want you to find comfort in that and I want you to take the appropriate steps going forward. But for the rest of us, for those of us who who haven't really experienced all that much mistreatment in our life, but who might experience some in the future. I'd love for us just to consider where this might need to be our response when it comes to mistreatment. So we'll just end with one question. And the question is this, where might God be calling you to redemptive suffering? Where might God be calling you to redemptive suffering? Where might he be calling each of us to endure mistreatment as a way of putting God and his grace on display? So I want you to just spend a moment, cycle through your typical day or week or month or whatever it is, and just ask the question, are there ways that I am mistreated by people around me? And if so, I then want you to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, how might you have me respond in a way that reflects Jesus to those people? So I'm going to pray for us, and then once I'm done praying, I just want you to spend some time processing that question, maybe journaling through it for a bit before you move on to whatever is next in your day. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for um, the example of Jesus. God, that even though he did nothing wrong, he endured mistreatment from people around him. God, thank you that he has left us an example to follow. That even when people mistreat us for no good reason, God, that we have have an example, we have a template to look to for how we can respond in those scenarios in a way that puts who you are on display. So God, I want to pray that that for each of us, when mistreatment comes, when we are excluded or hated or um, railed against or whatever it might be, when we encounter that type of mistreatment, God, I want to pray that you would give us the ability by the power of your spirit to respond like Jesus responded. 
God, would you help us to put on display that posture? And God, through that, would you, inco- would you accomplish incredible things? Would you draw people to yourself? And God, we ask all this in your name, for your glory. Amen.